All right, we're going to get started. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness and care for us. Lord, we're so undeserving. And yet you um, not only came down and stooped down to us as a human and to give your life as a ransom for many. Lord, thank you that you also send us your word that is um, living and active and that is still, it still speaks to us today, that it still transforms us. I do pray, Father, that as we look to discover the meaning that you intended with every word, that we may find encouragement and hope and comfort through the consolation of the scriptures. I pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so it is good to be back. First thing first, we got some uh, new books for the library. So for those that are working on their, writing their paper on Jonah, uh, these, uh, Jenny, uh, we'll leave those in the library as a reference. So you can take them home, but you can photocopy it. You know, if there's someone here in a church with access to the library, the copy machine, you just tell us what pages would you like to be copied, and we'll, we'll do that. So we got a Bible background commentary, which might be helpful for the study in Jonah, and a illustrated Bible dictionary. Those are very good, and I encourage you to use these resources. All right? Um, we... We're getting to the point where we're finally getting to biblical interpretation, right? Well, how do we get uh, to the meaning? And then that's the theme of today is uh, what is the meaning of a biblical text? Before we get there, I, um, you know, just thought about this. Imagine that you're driving with a friend and he is going super fast, like... 90 miles an hour, and, and you see the sign which says 60, and you, you know, what in the world are you going too fast, buddy? And, and he turns to you and says, well, that, that's not what it means to me. This, this means 90. <laughs> and he would keep driving um, at that speed, and soon enough, you, you hear the, um, the officer following and pull over, and the office pulls, pulls you over and asks him, you know, do you know how fast you're going? Um, probably not, but, um, you know, you tell me, officer, well, you're going 90 miles an hour. <laughs> um, well, so what's the problem? Well, there's a sign here that says 60, and he, he turns to him and says, well, but that's not what it means to me. <laughs> wouldn't be strange if, if that happened because the office would just blank stare. Well, sorry, it doesn't, doesn't matter what it means to you. It means what it means, and it means 60 miles an hour. <laughs> so another situation uh, would be you receive your bill, and you decide not to pay for it because, you know, that due date there is just symbolic. It, it really doesn't mean... Uh, July, and, you know, you keep coming with uh, August and, and September, and, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that I have to pay at that time, you know, it's just a suggestion. <laughs> you 
it would be ludicrous for us to do that, right? We probably would have our uh, gas bill cut off if we didn't pay for it. So there are consequences for not um, taking things at their meaning. And here's another one that is even more concerning. <laughs> you have uh, prescriptions, and every now and then we'll have some um, indications uh, when to take, uh, to take with food, because if you don't, you're probably going to be lightheaded or, or whatever the case may be. Um, you can't take aspirin with this particular. So all these warnings, if you look at them and say, you know what, I don't think this means what it really is saying. You know, I think it means this. All of these would be all very, um, you know, laughable um, takes on, on these texts that we read on a day-to-day -day basis. But they illustrate their real-life examples to highlight the consequence of honoring the reader um, response over the authorial intent. And I'm going to explain a little bit uh, this today. So what is the meaning? Who determines the meaning of a literary piece? These questions have prompted, prompted a, a lively and sometimes heated debate, not only in a secular literature circles, but also among students and scholars of the Bible. Throughout the first half of the 20th century, the traditional approach to interpreting biblical literature, or any literature for that matter, was to assume the author determined the meaning. And the reader's job was to find that meaning that the author intended. Within the world of secular literature criticism, however, this approach came under attack throughout the later, later half of the 20th century. And many literary critics today argue that it is the reader and not the author who determines what the text means. This view has drifted over from secular literary criticism into the field of biblical interpretation. So I think the author uh, of our textbook gives a, a couple ex examples there on uh, the how do you read the Wizards of Oz? You know, is there a, a hidden meaning in there? And um, there was the other analogy that he does is with the song of the Beatles where he thought, oh, he's talking about a friend. No, he was talking about drugs. <laughs> it, it, you know, so there's things that we don't realize what actually the author was intended to, intending to say. Um, so some concluded that the term meaning applies only to the reader as <clears throat> only as a reader interacts with the text that it takes both the reader and the text to produce meaning. The author, they argued, is no longer involved. Uh, they already wrote, now it is up to us to decide what they meant. Of course, there remain those who maintain the original author still controls the meaning. And as an author writes, they argue, he and she intends or she intends to convey a certain meaning in the text. This intended meaning of the author is true to the true meaning of the text. So the position, and this is just so you know the distinction, the position that it stresses the author in the determination of meaning is called authorial intention, authorial intention. The opposing view, which focuses on the reader, 
as the main character in the determination of the meaning, it's called the reader response. It is a reader response. Now, which approach should we take? <laughs> Authorial intent. Um, now, we do understand that we, we bring some pre-understandings, and we discussed this in previous classes, and, and how sometimes, uh, because we are in contact with the Word and the Spirit is at work in us, He will help us to get closer and closer to uh, understanding what the author means. So the issue of communication, therefore, lies at the heart of one's decision about how to interpret the text. If you, the reader, see the text as a communication between the author and yourself, you should search for the meaning that the author intended. If, however, you as the reader do not care to communicate with the author, then you are free to follow the reader's response and interpret the text without asking what the author meant. In some cases, however, there might be negative consequences for such reading as... You know, I just illustrated here with these different examples. Authorial intent is an important issue, one that lies at the foundation of our approach to interpreting Scripture. If you read the Bible merely as a great literature, merely for its aesthetic value, or merely for its suggestive moral guidance, not as a communication from God, then you can interpret a text in a way that you choose. You may... Um, your main interpretive question will be, what does this text mean to me? I, um, you might hear some, some people saying, you know, maybe in the Bible, say, what does this mean to you? <laughs> All right? um, if, however, you believe that the Bible is God's revelatory word to you and that a scripture functions as communication from God to you, you should interpret the Bible by looking for the meaning that God, the author, intended. Your interpretive question should be instead, what is the meaning God intended in this text? That should be our question. Not what it means to you, but what, it, what did the author mean? I believe strongly that the Bible is a revelation from God to us. And God's purpose to communicate with us about himself and his will for us. We can choose to ignore this, his message and interpret biblical texts according to our feelings or desires, but if we do, we will suffer the consequences of disobedience. Just like the one who ignores the traffic signs and decides to read 90 miles on a 60-mile sign, one can't argue with the officer when they are pulled over, this is what I think the signs means to me. No matter how ingenious one might be, traffic fines will appear in their record. Furthermore, we'll, and, and coming back to scripture, is we will also miss out on knowing God in the way he desires us to know him. If we only find what we're looking for in the scripture, we never grow. We never learn new things. So it is essential that we follow the authorial intent approach to interpreting the Bible. In biblical interpretation, the reader does not control the meaning, the author controls the meaning. This conclusion leads us to one of the most basic principles of our interpretive approach. We do not, and this is kind of a review, we do not create meaning. 
Rather, we seek to discover the meaning that has been placed there by the author. So let's go then for some definitions here. I think it is uh, knowing the rules of the game, we will play the game well, right? The first term that needs defining is author. When discussing non-biblical literature, the term author refers to the person who wrote the literature. When we use the term author in conjunction with the Bible, however, we're referring to both the human author and the divine author. So ultimately, when we study the Bible, we are looking for the meaning that God intended. However, although the biblical text is divinely inspired, it certainly has human fingerprints all over it. God chose to work through human writers to deliver this message to us. The languages that he chose uh, to use were human languages. The divine and the human element in the scriptures are frequently difficult to distinguish sometimes. Therefore, it is helpful to lump them all together and say, you know, this is the term author. <laughs> Both divine and human, it's, it's an author. At this juncture, it is important that we define the terms meaning and application. And this, this is, you can find in your textbook there. We use the term meaning to refer to that which the author wishes to convey, convey with his signs. And by signs, we you know, mean letters and grammar. And so signs are simply the different conventions of written language, such as grammar, syntax, word meanings, and so on. This way, the biblical, in the biblical interpretation, meaning is not determined by the reader. Meaning is what the author intended to communicate when he wrote the text. What the reader does with the meaning, and that's where what Jenny was getting at there, is application. This is what we do, is, is the application. That's the part that involves us as the readers. Once we identify the meaning of the text that God is trying to communicate to us, then we must respond to that meaning. We use the term then application to refer to the response of the reader to the meaning of the text. Thus, it would be incorrect for us to ask in a Bible study, what does this passage mean to you? The correct question um, sequence is what does this passage mean and then how should you apply this meaning to your life this may seem picky at this point but you will see that this is an important distinction to maintain meaning is something that we can validate it is tied to the text and to the intent of the author not to the reader therefore the meaning of the text is the same for all Christians it is not subject, sub, uh, subjective. Um, it does not change from reader to reader. But application, on the other hand, reflects the impact of the text on the reader's life. So sometimes when a preacher is preaching, he will bring some application. Now, those applications might be different uh, from person to person. Some might relate more to that specific application. But if the, the meaning of the text is explained, you know, even if there is not one application that you identify with, you could find other applications to that passage. Uh, this is particularly true in the private ministry of the Word. So when I'm counseling, what I'm trying to do is to connect the dots between the meaning of a passage and bringing it to bear to a specific scenario that um, they're facing. 
So, <clears throat> application, it's, um, it's the impact of the text on the reader's life. It, then it is more subjective, <clears throat> and it reflects a specific life situation of the reader. The application of the meaning will vary from Christian to Christian, but it will still have some boundaries influenced by the author's meaning. You know, if you're... <clears throat> sorry. If you had a chance to talk to Paul and tell him, you know, this is how I applied this text to, to my life. And, and Paul would say, eh, I don't know why you come up with that. But, you know, you will have an idea that that was not really his, uh, you know, understanding. But if your application... Like, okay, I, I can see how this could um, be applied in this way. So, how these definitions fit into the interpretive journey? So, today we're going to start tying up all those things together since the beginning of our class that we had those, uh, the interpretive journey. You remember the, the first step, find out the, um, the meaning and, and then the word. You study the culture and what, what the author intended. And then you're trying to, to know the cultural background, the language, the kind of genre that that book is, the situation, the covenant, that really separates the original audience and the original author from us living here on the modern times. So we need to, to find this bridge that connects all of this and to cross this river and get to our own town. And then number four here is, okay, this is the principle. But this principle, as a, a town has many streets, has many ways that you can go about it on how to, um, to apply in different ways. Um, all right, so let's go one, just kind of quick review here, step by step. Um, so... Remember that I talked about observation, and when you're just reading the text, no commentaries, no, you're just trying to understand what the English text uh, means, just plain understanding of it, trying to make observations, asking questions to the text. And then two, three, and four really consist on the interpretation. It's when you're considering the culture, when you're considering the different meanings of independent words, um, and you're trying to find that bridge between what, it, what do we have in common here? What are the differences? What, is, what it separates us? And then number four, um, we, you, you conclude what the meaning is. So that, that's the part that is interpretation. Um, and lastly, the application part. All right, so grasp the text in their own uh, town. What did the, so some questions to help is, what did the text mean to the original audience? Step two, measure the width of the river to cross. Where are the differences between the biblical audience and us? Step three, cross the principalizing bridge. I like this thing that he came up with. What is the theological principle in this text? Number four, um, consult the biblical map. How does this theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible. And why is this question so important? Because um, that will keep us away from having independent interpretations. I, I remember telling you the example of a gentleman that came to preach to us here, and he had a very unique 
um, take on the parable of um, the prodigal son. He made it to be all about psychology and, and shame. And I was like, what, that, you know, you'd be on an alert when someone says, you know, I have a new take on this. Like, okay, 2,000 years of Christianity, and you're the first one to come up with that. Uh, um, or, or, you know, someone in the, <clears throat> the 90s came up with that explanation, and you're regurgitating what they, they brought up. So consult the biblical map. Does this really consist with the rest of Scripture? And then lastly, grasp the text on their own, on the text in your own town. How should individual Christians today live out the theological principles? So in their inter interpretive journey, both steps one and three, the expression of meaning of the biblical audience and theological principle are part of the meaning of the text. Through his scripture, God communicates to his people both the immediate concre concrete expression of the biblical audience and the theological principle for future audiences meaning us. As God directed the writers of Scripture to compose the biblical text, certainly he was conscious of future audiences. He knew that we we're going to read it. When Paul penned his letter to the Romans, for example, certainly the Holy Spirit working within him intended for his letter to have meaning for the future Christians as well, not just for the Christians in Rome. Paul himself, the human author, was probably aware of this, but without a doubt, God, the divine author, had future congregations in mind, as well as the Romans, when he directed Paul to write what he wrote. Consequently, both the specific details of the letter and the theological principle underlining each text are intended by the author. This is the meaning that we seek to find in our Bible study. After we have identified this meaning, then we can begin to ask what we should do about the text. How do we live out God's word? So that's application phase. Now, um, how do we determine what the author meant? Uh, our presuppositions about authority intent will reflect our approach to our study. Meaning, remember, we defined as to which the author wishes to convey with, convey with his signs. The signs were referred to the conventional, conventions of language, syntax, grammar, word meaning, and so on. The author used these signs to communicate his message to us. Our goal is to use the signs as indicators for what the author was trying to convey. Context, both literary and historical cultural, are also helpful indicators to what these signs mean. You will recall the meaning is tied to the context and not determined solely by grammar and dictionary definitions, right? We, if you just pick up the Strong's Dictionary and you will find all those definitions, it, it doesn't mean, um, and unfortunately we didn't cover the, the fallacies, the, the word study fallacies, uh, but you can read on the notes that I, I gave you just different examples on how people twist words to favor um, their their interpretation sometimes even not even intentionally um, they do that so meaning is tied to the um, to the one who produced the sign so he he gives here an example of uh, the word engine it says for example that we ask a five year old what is under the hood of his or her 
you know, parent's car. Uh, most five-year-olds could tell us that under the hood is the engine. However, what does the child envision by the term engine? The child probably uses the word to mean something big, noisy, and somewhat mysterious that make the car go. We cannot determine the meaning of the word engine in the child's dialogue by going to a dictionary. It's like, okay, this is what they mean. Likewise, if we ask a mechanic what is under the hood of the same car, he might also say the engine. But what he envisions with a 350 cubic, would be a 350 cubic inch V8 four barrel carburetor Chevrolet engine with turbochargers. He'll be very specific because of his level of expertise. His use of the term engine has no connotations of being something mysterious. We uh, would be misunderstanding the two people if we use the mechanic's definition of engine to interpret the child's statement, and if we use the child's definition of engine to understand the mechanic would be inappropriate. So for proper interpretation, for communication to take place, we must ask the author what he meant by the word he used. Um, I, th that comes to mind, I think, one problem that I, I face you know, on a day-to-day. -day. You might be talking to, to a Christian, um, and they're using the same language. But have you come across, this, and, and you're going to the conversation, oh, we're tracking, we're, you know, we're believers, we're in this together. And then they start explaining, and you're like, uh... That's not what I mean by what you're saying. We're using the same words, but we mean total different things. You know, you might say salvation. And, and for, for someone, uh, my dad before coming to faith, um, salvation for him was uh, abandoning alcohol when he was an alcoholic. Um, it, it wasn't redemption and forgiveness of sin and deliverance from hell and Heaven, it, it didn't include those things. It was, you know, I was saved from this hell here. I mean, like, no, that's not, not even close to what hell is. So we might be using the same words, but they don't mean the same thing. The writers of the Bible, including both the human and divine author, had encoded their meaning in this uh, specific way, with specific grammar, literary context, historical context. In other, in other words, God has worked through human authors to convey his meaning through the conventions of language. Sometimes his meaning is sim simple and clear. Sometimes it is complex and, or subtle. We will find it as we prayerfully dig into the text and search diligently for the meaning God has placed here. So the first of... first class that we'll have in January, we'll really dive into this about the importance of being dependent on God as we attempt to interpret scripture. So another question for you. If a person desires to communicate with the biblical author, grasp the text of the, the meaning of the text, how should he, this person structure their devotional time? Thus, a reading plan that follows a systematic book-by-book -book approach or a plan driven by topic better promote communication with the biblical author? What kind of approach to Bible reading should we use? Um, and, you know, I have nothing against 
um, using devotional books. Uh, they might be helpful. But what, what are your thoughts? How should we go about, if, we're on a, if we want to honor the biblical author, how we do our Bible reading? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is easy to veer off when we're jumping from one place to another. Um, that's a very good point. Though you, you see that being modeled in the preaching, um, and, and I think that should reflect also. Um, any other thoughts? Yeah. Um, so there is advantage of, I, I guess, studying topics specifically. I remember going... Uh, it was of great encouragement to me when I, I did a study on what, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? So I, you know, nowadays it's kind of easy because you go to something like Blue Letter Bible and you type in, wait on the Lord. Um, and then all these verses come up that have that expression. And th- that was encouraging to see, oh, this is what it meant for this group here. And this is what it meant for this group here. This is what this person didn't do, <laughs> you know, so it kind of builds up a little bit on um, the overall context of Scripture. Um, when we are looking for those different texts, though, we want to make sure that there is a connection, that there is a link. So in, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, we we want to honor the Holy Spirit by taking his word in its context, right? We don't want to just be piecing things together. Uh, there is advantage of some of these studies, but we want to be really careful if that's not all that we do. You know, oh, I just open the Bible at random and read a couple of verses, and, and then that's not the point. Now, what I'm saying with... Um, I like the way that my home church sometimes defi- made a distinction between a systematic reading of the Bible and a devotional reading of the Bible. Systematic reading, you're, you're reading bigger chunks, three, maybe uh, uh, you know, two or three chapters a day, um, and you're trying to get through the whole Bible in one year. Normally, you would call that a, a systematic reading of Scripture. In a devotional reading, you would read a smaller portion Maybe you would choose a, a, a book, a specific book of the Bible, First Corinthians, say, and you read a couple of verses or three verses. Uh, um, obviously, you, you want to maybe read a larger portion, but you want to meditate on those three little verses. And then next week, not, uh, the next day, you turn into the next verses, and you try to you know develop the argument that the author is bringing, and how does that uh, bear to you? And I mean, it... And if you're, if you're reading through a commentary, and it's, it's even more. I remember just doing some of that through Acts, and I'm still in chapter 14. And we've been, Lindsay and I have been doing that since last year. So it's, you know, it, it takes time because we're just reading smaller portion and really trying to get uh, a lot from it. So, you know, just keep that in mind as you, Think about your devotions and, um, and how you study scripture. All right, so let's return to the um, in- interpretive journey and how to determine theological principles. So I guess that the question is, how then we come from this to this after crossing this, uh, all these barriers, 
and we find a principle that is applicable, that is true for all times, taking consideration God's revelation, progressive revelation, obviously. So back in chapter 2 of our book, we introduced the interpretive journey and the concept of theological principles. Now we are getting more into the discussion on the importance of trying to find the author's intended meaning. We want to expand that step number three, the principalizing bridge, and give some additional guidelines, explanations, and help on how to get to that meaning. First of all, it is important to understand the relationship between general, universal theological truths and the context-specific theological truths. So the context-specific theological truths are based on the general, universal theological truths and yet are more narrowly focused into a specific setting. So when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, um, there was a background there of uh, rampant sexual immorality in, in, in that city. So you realize that not all cultures will be like that, um, even though nowadays things are, are getting pretty similar to what it was. Um, and then, so there is that general to a specific uh, group of people. That is, the undergirding specific theological truths that we see in biblical passages playing out in the life, in the lives, in the context of a specific people are basic. General universal truths about God, his character, and his action. For example, one of the most foundational general universal theological truths is that God is holy. So let me illustrate this. All right, so here's the theological truth. God is holy, and he wants his people to be holy. All right, there's two passages here, one in the Old Testament, Leviticus 11, and the other one, 1 Peter 1, 2, 13. This, broad, it, it, this is a broad universal truth, this one. God is holy, and he wants his people to live a holy life. Um, this is the broad and universal theological principle. Uh, furthermore, God reveals himself to people as he enters in a close relationship with them. He wants them to understand and to respect his holiness as well as to grasp the implications of his holiness. Throughout biblical history, however, the specific context, and that's where things get divided here, the specific context on how people relate to God and his holiness is not always the same. This is particularly true as we move from the Old Testament where God's holiness is manifested with his physical presence amongst his people. Remember, he was living amongst them. They had the tabernacle right at the center of their camp where their, their population lived. Um, so it's, it's his presence in dwelling in Israel midst in the tabernacle or temple into the New Testament where God's holiness is manifested throughout the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit now in the believers. Accordingly, as God takes this general and universal principle, i.e. his holiness, and begins teaching to his people this generalized theological truth, God is holy, will take on a different concrete and context-specific expressions depending on the situation. When the river of differences is wide, the difference in the context 
specific expression will be more significant. So remember that river that separates the original audience from us? Um, it, the wider will be when we're more, far more removed from that context. So uh, let's take here the, um, yeah, when the, the river then is narrow, the difference is context-specific expression will be small. So if you compare an Old Testament passage with a New Testament passage, you will have more things in common with us, modern readers, with the New Testament than we would have with the Old Testament. But the general principles are still there. All right, so God is holy and he wants his people to be holy. In the Old Testament, holiness involves separating righteousness from sinfulness. The clean from unclean, right? In the Old Testament law, God instructs the Israelites that all aspects of life must be lived in terms of separation, clean and unclean, so that they will always be conscientious of God's holy presence. This even includes what they eat. And then the context is specific in Leviticus 11. Holiness involves avoiding unclean food or in very specific, don't eat pork, right? That was very specific to that time. Now, we take into consideration um, the, the river is, is bigger on the Old Testament side and it's narrower on the New Testament side. He goes on here, in the New Testament, holiness involves separating righteousness from sinfulness. Very similar, right? The general principle, kind of similar there. Clean from unclean. In the New Testament, Jesus explained that clean and unclean is based on what, what not on what one eats, but on what one does or says. In the New Testament, uh, context is specific. We've got the First Peter 1.13 to 22 passage. Holiness involves one's manner of living. Very specific. Be self-controlled. Be obedient to the truth. Love one another. These are more uh, specific ways that the, the New Testament um, explains. So, as you can see, behind there, um, each context-specific theological truth we find in step one, what did the text mean in its own town, lies a more general theological truth or even a series of theological truths that becomes more general as we move away from the specific context. So the, the longer, the further you move away from the passage there, the, the original audience, you will get more broad um, information. That is the theological principle that remains the same for us. So in step two, define the river differences that we identify how far the context-specific theological truth, what it meant for them, we need to move. That is, in that step two, we not only identify the differences between the contexts and ours, but also the similarities. For example, regarding the food laws and the separation laws in Leviticus, the differences are that we're not Israelites and that we're not living under the old Mosaic covenant with God's presence, residing in a tabernacle right down the street from us. The similarities are, though, that we are still God's people. He is still holy, and he still demands holiness and separation from sin. 
right? Not maybe of foods clean and unclean, but he still demands cleanliness from believers, from his people, and we still enjoy his presence. Now we have the Holy Spirit. Not only we have him down the street, we have him in our hearts and lives. So with the differences in step two in mind, in the step three, we seek to identify the more general, so kind of going back to that, um, once you measure the river, then you find that one principle that still remains true from that passage. Looking for what level where the similarity let us know that the truth is, gen- is now general enough to apply to us as well as to them. So the original audience would say, you know, if we're, we're talking here to Moses and we said this is the principle, he would say, yes, this is the principle. Now, it might apply differently to me than it will apply to them in their time. So when we're studying the interpretive journey there in chapter 2, we saw the steps as sequential actions, suggesting that once you finish one step, you go to the next. But as we fine-tune this process, it is important to recognize that in reality, these steps 2, 3, and 4, they are closely interrelated and need to happen somewhat concurrently. That is, the differences and similarities between the original audience and us are critical in helping us identify the valid theological principles of the, that we find in number three there. Likewise, as we move away from the context-specific meaning toward the more generalized universal truths, we'll be fudging over into step four, where application, getting close to application, Because our determination of general truth comes from our understanding of God as revealed in the rest of the Bible. Now, another important factor to explore is, as we seek to determine theological principles, that of purpose. As we identify the meaning for the biblical audience in step one, we need to ask the question, why? Why did he write that? That is, what is the purpose of this truth that we're finding here on step one? Identifying the purpose is often instrumental in helping us move from the context-specific, from that original audience, meaning to a more general theological meaning, the, the principles that is to apply to us. Leviticus 11 defined specifically what Israel, now under the Mosaic Covenant, could eat and what they could not eat. That was there on step one. As we probe into the purpose, we realize that these food laws, as well as the laws of separation, have to do with God's holiness and his insistence that Israel incorporate the implication of holiness into all aspects of their life. It is the purpose that this helps us to develop the theological principle that lies behind Leviticus 11, but one that also connects our similarities as the people of God is still coming to the grips with his presence and demands of holiness. So if we go back there to that chart, you will see that here is general enough that um, it, it applies to all of us. It involves separation from righteousness to from sinfulness, clean and unclean. So which criteria, and and we already saw some of this, then we use to come to uh, this principle. How do we find the general principle? We saw this right in the beginning of our class. So here's some. 
this principle should be reflected in the text, okay? So if um, your explanation doesn't make sense when you read that text, it's probably not in the text. The principle should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. Um, I'll just take a step back here on that, that one, the first one. The principle should be reflected in the text. Now, I think the more, more common thing for us is we might be saying something that is theologically accurate, that is true, but it's not coming from that specific passage. Maybe another passage will be more fitting to what you were explaining there, but trying to read something that is not on that passage, um, it, it's not, uh, it doesn't reflect the text. The principle should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. So if the Bible is applicable at all times, then even Leviticus 11 has instruction for us. It is not bound by time. Oh, but how does that relate to us? Clean and unclean, not eating pork? Uh, well, why did the author write that? And I think that clues us in. Because God is holy, he demands holiness and separation from unrighteousness. What does unrighteousness look like today? Then you can develop that more fully. The principle should not be culturally bound. Oh, this is refers just to the people in Corinth. This refers just to the people in Ephesus. What are some unique characteristics that those that people group in particular had that we don't today? The principle should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. I and that's where I think that um, out of uh, context thing happens a lot is because, you know, this does not match with the rest of scriptures. And the principle should be relevant to both the biblical audience and the contemporary audience. Now, I'm going to add to these uh, four more principles um, that we haven't seen yet, but not, it, they're not that um, so obscure, kind of obvious. So the first one is, as part of step one, what did the text mean to them? Be sure to identify where is this passage fits within the large, overarching story of the Bible. This will help you identify similarities and differences on that step one. Number two, related to que the first question, we move from step one, two, and three, be sure to identify the purpose of the passage. Why did the writer wrote that? What is the purpose of the context-specific meaning that we identified in one? And then three, with the similarities and differences in your hand, use the purpose as a guide to move from context-specific meaning to a less context-specific and more general theological truths from that passage. As in the example above, identify several possibilities moving from mildly, uh, mildly context-specific to broadly general and universal truths. At the most general and most universal level, you are usually identifying basic characteristics of God, who God is, who man is. Those things remain true today. So, for example, God is love, God is holy and just, God is good, is a God who saves and delivers. 
right below this are usually general statements about implications of these truths for God's people in general. Then these general truths take on a more specific form as they are applied in the scriptures to a specific people in specific contexts. I didn't listen all of Eric's sermon last week, but what I heard, I thought it was really, really, really good. And he was, you know, explaining the situation with Saul on how he distanced, him, he distanced himself from the Lord and seeking his guidance and doing his own thing. Right? And one of Eric's application was, we too can distance ourselves so much from Scripture that we lose his guidance and we, we just get so um, deviated and to the point of even doing absurd things like he did seeking a necromancer. Then select the theological principles that is as specific as possible while still general enough to apply to us as the New Testament believers. So you get this, so it's, it's general, but it's specific enough that is reflected in that specific text. You won't find that truth in every single passage. So it's general and specific at the same time. I just wanted to make one quick observation here. Um, the, the hermeneutical principle is the main things are the plain things. Sometimes we go to the Bible and we're just trying to find something obscure or a, a, a meaning behind it. And it's, no, what does it say? The main things are the plain things. It stick to that passage um, I see people sometimes connecting verses, and, you know, even though sometimes when we're preaching, we have cross-references, right? But those cross-references, they ought to shed light on the passage that you're studying. If you hear someone spending a huge amount of time explaining a cross-reference, you, you're probably realizing, okay, those are it's kind of a stretch to make this connection here. So the passage that you're using as a cross-reference is supposed to shed light on the passage that you are studying. So I'll just give you a few principles to, to ex expand this. First step in the process, consult relevant resources, right? Read some commentaries, uh, grammar textbooks, um, sometimes, and we have these tools now, like Blue Bible Letter, that can help you to do some word studies. Then you pick up all that you gathered in those arguments, and the interpreter must collect all the possible arguments used both in favor and against what do you think. You might have different interpretations for that. Then you, you gather those. You state as many pros and cons, con contra arguments, as possible under each of these perspectives. Okay, maybe if I take this route, this is what is favors this interpretation, and this is what is against this interpretation. And this other one, you're going to do the same thing. Then you weight the evidence. Here's a skill of interpretation especially comes into play. The interpreter must evaluate all that he has compiled for each option and then decide which has the greatest merit and why. Greatest weight should be given to those arguments which best fit the rest of the text itself. So if this one matches more with the context of Leviticus, for instance, or Deuteronomy, then I think that is the closest interpretation. 
And then you finalize by stating your conclusion. After weighting the evidence, state the conclusion. What if the interpreter cannot solve the difficulty with confidence? Um, this author here provides a good counsel. He says, we're not sure, uh, when we're not sure, several things should be kept in mind. First, we should not build a doctrine on an obscure passage. Right? You shouldn't build a whole systematic teaching on one verse. Um, are there other parts of Scripture that have at least a hint or some connection to this? The rule of thumb in Bible interpretation is the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. This is called the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. If something is important, it will be clearly thought, taught in Scripture and probably in more than one place. Second, when a given a, a passage, uh, a given passage is not clear, we should never conclude that it means something opposed to another plain teaching of Scripture. God does not make mistakes in His Word; we make mistakes in trying to understand it. All right. So, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Um, you keep it simple. Um, when we have difficulties, and I've, I don't have enough time right now, but um, when we come back to this next year, um, I'm going to particularly go over some difficult passages that might be confusing, okay? And trying to get the general principle there without going off and getting away from the main things. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and mercy toward us. Thank you for your word that is living and active. Uh, Lord, we can't stop praising you for that. We're thankful that both the Old Testament and New Testament have teachings that are still relevant for today. Lord, I know that it is, uh, some texts are difficult, but we're just so thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit, right, for the love that you have put in the hearts of your people, for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow us in that desire, in the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen.